Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey dives into the story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So we've been walking through the Ten Commandments um, the last four weeks. We skipped the seventh because we wanted to do a whole sermon on it. That's, um, I think it's the seventh. That is, uh, don't commit adultery. And so we're going to be doing that um, in three weeks. And so we've covered nine, at least, of the Ten Commandments over the last four weeks. And we are actually coming to the conclusion of our series in Exodus. There are twenty cha- or there are forty chapters, excuse me, in the book of Exodus. We we are in Exodus chapter twenty today, twenty four, and then we'll be in thirty two. But we are coming to the conclusion of our series on Exodus, and as we are winding down in this series, I want to give you the setting. I want to remind you what's going on because it's really important for the rest of the message. If you remember. God told Moses, I want you to come up here to the mountain, tell your people, don't touch the mountain, stay outside of the mountain, and I'm going to give you the law. And so God gives Moses what we're calling the Ten Commandments, and he also gives him a little bit more than just the Ten Commandments, right? He gives him the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but he continues kind of expounding upon the Ten Commandments and giving, well, here's the practicals of what the Ten Commandments will look like in your day-to-day life, and it's called the law. And if you guys remember, we talked briefly about the law. The law actually is comprised of five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, all of those. Those five books are called, in Greek, the Pentateuch, and in Hebrew, the Torah. And they contain a total of not 10 commands, but 613 commands. 613. But the Ten Commandments are called the Decalogue, right? The Decalogue. It means that they are the, 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 the ten foundational commandments, which all the other 603 commandments are based on. And so think about them as a summary or a foundation, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, for the other 603. Now, Moses is on the mountain. He is receiving the Ten Commandments. The people are, are seeing Moses. They're seeing um, a consuming fire. They're seeing um, the, the cloud coming down. And they are kind of freaked because God was like, hey, don't come near me and don't touch the mountain. So many times you'll hear people preach this message as if God invited the whole nation up to the mountain and they were afraid to go. That actually isn't how it happened. God was very specific and he said, don't, don't even touch the mountain. Only you, Moses, come up. Now, here's why this is uh, important. From this point forward, in Exodus chapter 20, all the way through the book of Numbers, this is going to get really hard to read. So if you guys have been with us the last year and a half, you've actually, I added it up, you have been able to go through 70 chapters of the Bible. The last year and a half, we have gone through together 70 chapters of the Bible. Sometimes we've touched on them loosely, and some of them we've touched on really in depth and really detailed, um, but we have covered 70 chapters. Now, it's been really easy to cover 70 chapters because the narrative is very clear. It's very linear. It's been very easy to read, okay? So, but Exodus chapter 20, things are going to shift. And if you've been following along with us in this last year and a half, and you've gone through the first 50, the 50 chapters in Genesis and the first 20 chapters of Exodus, you'll know that it reads very clear. Abraham, his story, 
bleeds right into Isaac's story. And then it talks about what Isaac does and it bleeds right into Jacob's story. And then that bleeds right into Joseph's story, which bleeds right into the, the birth of the nation of Israel, which leads right into Moses's story. Right? It's been very easy to cover these 70 chapters and it's been very easy to read these 70 chapters because it's a story and it's a narrative and it all makes sense. But here we're about to be introduced to a new, um, a, a new thing in the Bible called a parenthetical. Who here knows what a parenthetical is? Who here knows what a parenthesis is? Okay, think about it like a parenthesis, okay? And the Bible is full of these parentheticals, and so many people don't realize that the Bible does this. I'll explain what it is in a second. And because of that, they misread the Bible, and they get lost in the story, okay? So a parenthetical in the Bible, think about it like this. The narrative of a Bible, when it goes linear, it's saying this happens, which produces this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Israel, to Moses. But a parenthetical is where it basically inserts a parenthesis in the story. And then rather than going across the board, it does a deep dive into something. Typically, it's words of the Lord. In the story, the narrative stops for a moment and it begins, uh, it begins to get a little, I want to say dull to read, but hard to read because it doesn't seem like it's fitting in the narrative. And this happens predominantly um, in uh, the prophets. You see this in, in almost every book in, um, in any one of the major or minor prophet books. And it could just be really clunky and really hard to read. Okay, now here's why I'm saying that. We are officially in our first parenthetical in the book of Exodus. Okay, remember the story. Moses is up on the mountain. It's consuming fire in its glory. The people are down here. And then the narrative stops. Exodus chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23 have nothing to do with the narrative. And it's God giving the parenthetical. It's God actually giving his laws. And it's detailing what's being said to Moses on the mountain. Okay, so here's again why that is so important, because what will happen is people don't read the Bible that way. And if you're just reading the Bible like, okay, I'm, I'm in Exodus 19, Moses goes up the mountain, and then I'm in Exodus 20, and it's a lot of laws and commands. And then I flip over to Exodus 21, and it's still a lot of laws and commands. And I'm flipping through Exodus 22, and it's still a lot of laws and commands. People get lost, and people lose interest. And people, by the time they get to Exodus 24, they forget that 24 takes place immediately after 20, right? Does that make sense? And so we're going to see a really good example of that with Exodus 32, but it is an important understanding that you guys need to get. Otherwise, you're going to get lost when you're reading your Bible. So we're going to finish the remaining um, series in Exodus in three weeks. We have three weeks left in the book of Exodus. And the reason we have three weeks left in the book of Exodus is though there are 20 more chapters to go, the vast majority of those chapters are parentheticals. They're not narrative, right? The vast majority, as a matter of fact, there's really only like two more kind of narrative plot points, if you will, in the next 20 chapters. The mo most of those chapters are laws. And we're not gonna go through all of those laws because I wanna keep you guys coming back. Okay, so I'm not going to go through every little detail of every little law. You can do that on your own. Okay, 
But we're going to land the plane here in about three weeks on the book of Exodus. We're going to go right into the book of Numbers. Numbers has more parenthetical um, uh, chapters than Exodus. And so you may be looking at the book of Numbers and going, holy cow, how are we going to get through Numbers? We're actually going to get through Numbers pretty fast because, again, I'm not going to hit any of those laws and I'm not going to hit any, anything but the narrative plot points. Okay, and we're going to conclude our series having gone through numbers. Now, some of you guys are like, well, what about Leviticus and what about Deuteronomy? Just so you know, here's how this works. Okay, we're going to get to the end of our series in Exodus and the temple or the tabernacle of Moses is going to be built. And it's going to be awesome. Glory is going to fill the tabernacle and then it basically just ends. And it goes right into Leviticus. Well, Leviticus is all parenthetical. If you're going to look at the Torah as a whole, Leviticus is one giant parenthetical. All it is is a deep dive. There's no narrative in the book of Leviticus. Okay, so that's basically everything that God, that Moses gets on the mountain. Well, then Numbers is going to pick up with the next plot point from Exodus right after everything's happened and the, uh, the glory has filled the tabernacle. And then it's going to continue with some more laws, some more narrative. And then Deuteronomy is going to take place. And Deuteronomy is Moses actually giving final instructions to the next generation of people who are going to enter the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is, is basically three, I think it's three, basically speeches that Moses is giving to the nation of Israel. Now, some of you guys have never read the Torah um, and, and you've probably never dabbled in Leviticus and you've probably never dabbled in Deuteronomy. Well, that's the setting. So really just us going through, um, just us going through Genesis, Exodus and Numbers, we're basically going to hit every plot point in the Torah. You're going to be very well versed in the first five books of the Bible, which means you're really going to understand the New Testament because the New Testament leans heavily on the first five books of the Bible. So chapters 20 through 23 of Exodus, it's our first parenthetical, and it comes with 20 being about or being law, 21 being law, 22 being law, and then 23 is part law, part promise. Okay? Told you this is gonna be a little bit more teachy. I apologize, right? Part chapter 23 is gonna be part law, part promise. And God at the end of chapter 23, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there now. I'm not gonna read it. But if you want to just fact check me, 23 is God saying, okay, Moses, in light of all of these laws that I'm giving you at our very first meeting on top of Mount Sinai, I want to remind you my heart. My heart is for you. My heart is for Israel. My heart is for my people. And I love my people. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my people the land of promise. Now, this is not the first time they've heard that, but this is just one giant stamp of approval that God is saying, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And he starts to describe what the promised land is going to look like. And then he starts to describe all of the challenges that Israel is going to face once they get to the promised land. And he starts to describe God's provision for Israel. And this is what he says. I think this is really interesting. I kind of feel like this is almost a prophetic kind of word for some of you, that this is specifically what he says. He goes, hey, listen, there's enemies in the promised land right now, and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. Then he said, now I'm going to deliver you, but it's going to require you to fight. Okay. He says, deliverance is coming, but it's not going to happen in one instant. And he goes, I'm not going to do the work for you. He goes, I want you to go out there and I want you to fight. And he says this, and he goes, very specifically, he goes, I will not drive them all out at once because if I were to drive out every ite in the land, he goes, the land would be made desolate. He says, by the time you were able to inhabit the land, he goes, it would become a barren wasteland and it wouldn't be a promised land. And so the very phrase that God uses, he goes, I will drive your enemies out little by little. 
to keep your land from wasting away, which I think is really fascinating and really awesome of the Lord. He's going to go, hey, you're going to move an inch and then they're going to gave They're going to gain an inch, right? They're, they're going to give an inch, right? You're going to move a little bit and then they're going to move a little bit out. And next thing you know, after you have been obedient and after you have fought, I promise you, you will possess this land, the land that's flowing with milk and honey, this beautiful land of paradise and you will be my people and it will be essentially Eden on earth. It's beautiful. That's chapter 23. So chapter 24, we're literally going to read all of chapter, most of chapter 24 right now, right? And I'm going to show you what happens because it's so important. After 24, chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, the next seven chapters are parentheticals, and the story is going to pick up from chapter 24 right into chapter 32. Now, most of you are familiar with chapter 32, and you don't even know it. Chapter 32 is the golden calf incident, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Everybody watch that VeggieTales episode, right? It's the golden calf incident. And so what I'm about to give you in chapter 24, and what I just explained to you is all the setup for chapter 32. And if you miss it, chapter 32 feels really weird and really awkward. So chapter 24, God, Moses gets all of this revelation. He gets the 10 commandments and then some. He gets chapter 23, which details the promise that God gives him. And then this is what happens. God, Moses begins to move down the mountain to see his people for the first time since interacting with God on the mountain. It says this, chapter 24, verse three. Then Moses came and recounted to all the people all the words and all the ordinances of the Lord. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, so I just want to be really clear. Moses, this is his first time seeing his people since receiving the Ten Commandments. This is them hearing the Ten Commandments for the first time. And they said, all that the Lord commands, we will do. Did you guys catch that? Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He does a little sacrifice there, then continue on a few verses later. Then he took the book, the thing that he just wrote, all the words of the Lord, the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses gets the law, comes down, tells the law to the people, and they're like, Yes, we sign up. This is what we want. And then he goes, Great, I'll write down the contract. I'll write down the book. And he reads the book and he's like, this is what you're agreeing to. And they're like, this is what we're agreeing to. All of the Lord has spoken. We will be obedient. That was their language. And they make a blood covenant right then and there. It's so exciting. As a matter of fact, it's so exciting that if you continue reading in chapter 24, God celebrates and he says this. He goes, hey, Moses, go get Aaron. Go get um, Nadab. Go get Abihu. I want you to bring everybody up to the mountain Goes, go get 70 of your elders and we're going to have a dinner party. Read it. Check it out. He goes, he goes, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. 
It's not just Moses on the mountain now. You're getting that. There's a key figure there too. His name is Aaron. Aaron is with Moses and he sees the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the noble sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and they drank. So they get this covenant, they sign up. They're like, yes, we want this. We want all of God's promises. We want to be obedient. We love the 10 commandments. We love everything that God said, sign us up. God says, come on up to the mountain. We're going to celebrate. And he takes their key leaders and he, he um, pours out his spirit on them. They see God. They don't just hear God and they don't just hear about God. They are having the same kind of encounter that Moses is having. And they celebrate and they eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Some scholars will say, and I tend to believe it, that this is like a little convergence of heaven on earth. And they're actually kind of like seeing into um, the actual throne room. And it's the sea of glass, the sea of sapphire. And here they are eating and drinking on a pre-Mount Transfiguration type moment. Now, look at the very next verse. We're in 24, right? You guys are in 24. You trucking with me? The scene's going to shift. This is after the dinner party. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets, which the law and the commandment uh, of which I've written for their instruction. Okay, so he's getting ready to get the actual tablets of stone, the 10 commandments that we all know and love. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders, he said, now just, are you making sure you're following me? The elders, what did they just do? Were they just on the mountain with, with Moses? Yes, it's important, right? The elders, he said, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on a mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and as he went up to the mountain, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. That's the plot point. You're about to get seven chapters where this is like a to be continued until Chapter 32, now Moses is going to get lots more law and lots more instruction. Namely, he's going to get some instruction about the tabernacle and God resting with men and what it's going to look like. He gets some instruction about the, the priesthood and what that's going to look like. But if you don't understand the idea of a parenthetical, you don't realize that this is a to be continued immediately in chapter 32. So go ahead and flip over to chapter 32. Moses is on the mountain. He's having these conversations with the Lord. This seems to be the 40th day. Okay? Verse 1, chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, 
Tear off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took uh, this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God. Who's they? That's interesting. And they said, this whole thing is about Aaron. They go to Aaron, and they say to Aaron, hey, I want you to make this for us. And then Aaron responds, but instead of saying Aaron responds, it says they respond. Well, Aaron, her, and the 70 elders. Now, do you remember who Aaron and her were? They did. They had a really famous story that John preached on about a month ago. Aaron and her were the very ones to the left and to the right of Moses lifting up his arms in the battle of Amalek. Aaron and her were Moses' guys. Aaron and her, they were a big deal. Aaron and her were left in charge. Right, right before Moses leaves, he says, hey, guys, look at Aaron and look at her. If there's any issues, go to them. So when he says, uh, and they said, this is your God, it's Aaron, her, and the 70 elders. Oh, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, the golden calf. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. That's what the Bible says. They rose up to play, and that's not a very happy play. It's a very sinful play. Okay. We're going to camp out in Exodus 32 this week and then next week. Okay? Then there's one more plot point that we're going to hit the week after. I want to talk to you about the hidden purpose of the law the hidden purpose of the law. Okay, so though we're gonna to touch on the golden calf today, we're using that as our plot point. Um, really, we're gonna expound upon the golden calf incident itself next week. I wanna to talk to you about something that's kind of hidden that you may miss. Remember the setting. Israel had just received the covenant for the first time. And what did they say? All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And then they repeated it again. All that the Lord has commanded, they said, we will be obedient. And then God calls Moses up onto the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And Israel couldn't even keep the law for 40 days and 40 nights. It says that when they saw that Moses was delayed in coming, they started to freak out. They said, we need a new God. So here's the idea. Israel was doing the very thing that they promised not to do. Israel was doing the very thing that they promised not to do. Now, that's far more important than you might realize because it's illustrating a foundational truth in our understanding of the Bible. And it's a truth that if we don't get it, literally we will be, we will be lost as we read the New Testament. Israel had just received their first set of laws and in no more than 40 days, they have broken virtually every single one of them. And not by mistake, not because they were immature, not because they, they, they had a bad moment. Can we all agree that this is far greater than a bad moment? Yeah? They had a bad, this was bad, right? Not only was this bad, this wasn't the first bad thing that they did. As a matter of fact, they continually complained against the leading of the Lord and against Moses 
we've had a couple of sermons talking about that very thing. And so this is actually just their discontentment with the God, with God is literally just brewing and servicing in a really intense way. Here's the idea. They said yes with their minds, but they said no with their hearts. When God presented the covenant, when he presented what I want you to do, when he presented what he wanted them to do, they were all in the moment going, absolutely, that's what we want. And then they had zero follow through. Now raise your hand if you would say that you've been there before as a Christian. All that the Lord has commanded me, I will do. And then like the next day, you're back at it. Raise it high. Raise it high if that's been you. Awesome. Now, I want you to think about this. This is where we're going to go with this. Romans chapter 7 is typically the passage that in that moment where you are not doing the thing that you want to do and you are doing the thing that you don't want to do, just like the children of Israel, Romans chapter 7 is the passage that most Christians think about. And Romans chapter 7 is the, the passage that most preachers preach about in order to comfort us in our complacency and in our rebellion. You say, Casey, what's Romans chapter 7? Raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase or the verse that says, well, Paul said, um, why do I continue to do the things that I don't want to do and all the things that I do want to do, I, I don't do. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Okay. That verse is really what we're going to look at this whole sermon. We're going to read all of Romans 7 and we're going to dissect Romans 7 because what we're seeing is that very principle is, a, is happening right now in the children of Israel. They're saying yes with their mind. They're saying no in their hearts. They just got the word. They just got the command. They just got the covenant and they're already breaking it. And typically what we do is we, we look at that and we go, oh, well, we're just like the children of Israel. Praise God, we're in a good company. The children of Israel don't make it. This generation, they aren't going to see the promised land. This isn't a mistake. This isn't immaturity. God actually says later on, he goes, they are hard-hearted and obstinate. That it's not an issue with the truth. It's not an issue with what they know. It's an issue in their heart. And God actually tells Moses, this is what we're going to look at next week. God actually tells Moses as this is going on, hey, just leave me alone. I'm going to kill them all. We're going to start over. Why, Lord? Because they're hard-hearted. This isn't a moment of weakness. This is actually who they are. They heard the law and their hearts were hardened by it in the same way that Pharaoh heard the command, let my people go, and his heart was hardened by it. Remember that? The nation of Israel is in that same spot, which to me only solidifies the idea that you can be God's chosen people and still harden your heart towards him. What's the foundational principle? I said, hey, there's a foundational principle that if you don't understand this, you're not gonna understand the Bible and you're not gonna understand the New Testament. Here's the foundational principle and I want you to hear me. The law produces death. The law produces death. Many Christians have no clue how to look at the Mosaic law. You actually are probably living in a level of conflict right now that you might not even be aware of that is rooted in this very thing. And Christians, we, we don't understand the Mosaic law. We don't understand the Torah. We don't get it. And we're like, well, wait a second. Uh, is, is the law good? Because we're not part of the law. We're not under the law. 
If it's, if it's good, then why are we not obeying the law anymore? Because we're Christians, right? We don't obey the law. Can we all just say that we're not under the law anymore? Amen. But if it's really good, then, then why aren't we under it? Ever thought about that? Many Christians, where we go, oh, we're saved by grace, but we live as if we're still under the law. And we go, well, there's all these commands that we still need to keep. And we go, well, wait a second. If the law is good, then why did he get rid of it? Or if it's bad, why did he give it in the first place? And here's what you need to understand. The entirety of the New Testament is written to explain this conundrum. And if you don't get that, the New Testament's not gonna make any sense to you. It's gonna seem like a bunch of random stories with a bunch of individual independent truths, and it's not. The New Testament is primarily written to explain the question, what was up with the law if we're no longer under the law? Because you have to understand the setting of the New Testament church The setting of the New Testament church is this. Now, all of a sudden, you have Jesus. He is resurrected and ascended, and his disciples and apostles are going around and preaching a new way of salvation. It is no longer you're saved by works of the law. And so they're preaching to everybody. They're preaching to the Jews, and they're preaching to the Gentiles. And they preach to the Jews, and they're like, hey, listen, you can't be saved by the law. You've got to come out from under the law, and you've you've got to come under grace. And naturally, the Jewish people are going, well, wait a second, that sounds, that sounds like heresy. That doesn't make any sense. The law is good. And they're going, no, no, the law is not great. You need, to, you need to come up from underneath the law. And so naturally, the Jewish people are going, well, wait a second, but if God gave the law, it's good. And God said Jesus fulfilled the law and he didn't come to abolish it. So what do we do with this? And, and you have entire books of the Bible, guys, that are written to express this Thought, the book of Hebrews. How many of you guys realize that I quote the book of Hebrews all the flipping time? That is the entire setting for the book of Hebrews. You have a bunch of Jewish people who have now come into the kingdom via the message of grace and the gospel of we are saved by grace through faith, but they're struggling and they're going, well, but what about the law? Do I keep the law? If I'm now under grace, do I have to go to the feasts? If I, if, if I, if I, Go to the feasts, am I nullifying the works of grace? And so Paul writes the book of Hebrews, Paul, whoever writes the book, we don't know the author. The author writes the book of Hebrews specifically to try to get them to understand, hey, don't listen to your Jewish friends who are trying to get you to go back under Jerusalem, or under uh, Judaism, sorry. He goes, don't go near Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is brilliant because here's what he's gonna do. Feel free to go read the book on your eyes. It's so rich. He's brilliant. He literally uses the law to prove that the law says that the law doesn't save. And so he's looking at these Jewish people and he's going, hey, listen, let me prove to you that it's always been saved by grace through faith. Let me prove to you that the law has never saved anybody. I will use the law and show you where it itself says that it's simply part A in the plan and it's not the culmination of the plan. So that's the whole book of Hebrews. But you don't just have Jews coming into the kingdom. You also have Gentiles coming into the kingdom. And Gentiles are asking this very question. They're going, wait a second, because Judaism and Christianity are not different religions. They're so closely knit together and they're going, well, well, wait a second, you guys, it's always been about the law. What do we do about the law? Do I, if Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people, do I need to become a Jewish people? If Jesus is the Messiah, what do I do with the law? Because he's fulfilling Judaism. He's not fulfilling my pagan, my, my, my pagan, uh, my pagan uh, whatever the, you know, he's not fulfilling my pagan religion. He's, it's all about Judaism. So should I go get circumcised? 
They start dealing with this and much of the New Testament is written specifically to answer these questions to various people groups. So you have Hebrews written specifically to tell the Jews, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go under the law. The law of Moses is futile. Obsolete is the word that he says. It's outdated. And then you go over to the book of Galatians and you have the Gentiles wrestling with the exact same thing because you got brand new Christians who were not Jews before. They have no founding in the word. They have no founding in the law. They've been saved by the gospel of grace. But instead, Jewish teachers, well-meaning, come in with the word and they're like, hey, now that you've been a Christian long enough, you need to start acting like a Jew. Now that you know Jesus, it's time that you go up under the law. And so the entire book of Galatians is the counterpart to Hebrews. Hebrews is written to get to keep Jews from going back, or Christian Jews to, from going back into Judaism. Well, Galatians is meant to keep, it was written to keep Gentiles from walking into Judaism. And Paul would go as far to say in the book of Galatians that, hey, if you do this, yeah, you should be accursed. He says, if anybody, including me, if I were to come back and, and, and add on or change the gospel that I preached to you originally, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a different gospel than I gave you, or if a Jewish teacher who looks good and sounds good teaches you a different gospel, he goes, let them be accursed. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? That's the whole context. Gentile, don't go under the law. Jew, don't go under the law. Well, then what the heck are we doing with the law? Casey, why are you even even working through the law right now? And if you don't have a good understanding of this, you're going to, listen, I'm just going to name drop for just a second. And I don't ever name drop. I don't ever bring up another pastor. But if you're not careful, you're going to end up like Andy Stanley. And I like a lot of the things that Andy Stanley says. I'm not saying Andy Stanley's not saved. I'm not saying he's not a good pastor. But what I am saying is Andy Stanley's on this big movement right now because he's come to the conclusion that we need to unhitch ourselves, his words, not mine, from the Old Testament. And the law, because it has no bearance on people, means that we should never bring up the Old Testament. And so he won't preach out of the Old Testament. He won't give anything out of the Old Testament because it's obsolete and it's gone. He's doing a whole series in his church, writing a book about it. That's dangerous, okay? But it's not unfounded because the whole New Testament is written to get people away from the law, right? So you see this like weird kind of odd conundrum that we're in as Gentile Christians in particular, but as Christians. Then you have things like the book of Acts. This is really interesting. In Acts chapter 15, you can read about the same tension. I'm telling you this tension, it's all throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, Paul was like the chief Jewish guy, right? He was the man. He was the Sadducee of Sadducees, the Pharisees of Pharisees. There was no better Jew. He gets saved, gospel of grace, saved by grace through faith. Then he starts preaching and he becomes a minister predominantly to the Gentile people. And he and Barnabas, they're having this argument with these other Jews. And the argument is whether the Gentiles who have now come into the kingdom should go under the law. And they start having this debate and it's specifically about circumcision, And Paul and Barnabas are going, no, but we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by the law. So therefore, the law can't save you. So no, you don't have to be under the law. No, you 40-year-old grown man, you don't need to go get circumcised. That's not part of salvation. But you got these Jewish guys who are going, yeah, but unless you can't be saved unless you're circumcised, according to the Torah. And so they start this big debate. And the debate just ends up, Paul and Barnabas go, we got to figure this out, man, because this is the issue of the day. 
And so they go up to the council in Jerusalem and they meet with all the other apostles. And they have this big, long prayer meeting slash debate hall with all the apostles. And they come to the conclusion, you can read about it in Acts chapter 15, Paul or Peter stands up and James and they basically say, hey, listen, you don't need to follow the law. The law was temporary. The law was a tutor. The law is not the very thing that saves us. And therefore, Gentiles coming to the kingdom, they don't need to keep the law. This is the conclusion that they come to. Christians are no longer bound by the law. That does not demand that one must forsake the law to become a Christian, but you don't have to follow the law anymore because the law has been fulfilled. It has nothing to do with salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. You have passages. We're going to look at Romans. You have passages like Romans. So I gave you the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians. I gave you Acts 15. There's so many other passages, but Romans deals with this directly. Remember that passage that we talked about. Why do I continue to do the things that I don't want to do and I'm not doing the things that I do want to do? And we use that as a comfort passage to bring us comfort in our rebellion, right? Now, here's the thing. There's other comfort passages, so I'm, I'm okay with comfort passages. You're allowed to struggle. You're allowed to be immature, right? But, but that passage often gets so taken out of context. Here, Romans 7, 6, 7, and 8. If you go read 6, 7, and 8, you will see that Paul is addressing this very issue. Do you need to go under the law to be saved? And so Paul begins to recount his life in Judaism. All right, so get this. Let me read this. Open up Bibles, Romans chapter seven. We're gonna go through the whole, the whole chapter. I'm gonna skip three verses because just for time. I shaved off what I could. Romans chapter seven. I need to make sure everyone's following me because this will change your life. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So he says, listen, the law, it's only binding on a person until they die, but you got crucified with Christ, and so you died. And so no, you're no longer under the law. You're to be bound to someone else. Who are you to be bound to? Jesus. He says, why? Because only in Jesus are you going to bear fruit. The law, you'll get good behavior, but you won't bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Look at the next verse. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Not in the oldness of the letter. And so he's, gonna make a, he's making a distinction here between walking in the spirit and walking in the letter. And this is really important. We're gonna talk about it in a moment. But remember, I gave you an analogy a few weeks ago about the difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is the intention of the law. Okay, the law was written to, to see this, this particular purpose come to pass. The letter of the law is different. And I use the analogy of like a lawyer, you know, and, and a lawyer can get somebody who's guilty 
They can, they can get them off the hook. They can, they can get them declared innocent, even though they're not, simply by going by the letter of the law and looking at technicalities and saying, well, technically, by the letter of the law, you're not guilty. But the law was written specifically to punish the guilty. And so in that situation and in that analogy, the spirit of the law is not being held, only the letter of the law is, okay? That was the analogy I gave. So he says, uh, while we were in the flesh... Simple passions, which were aroused by the law. I think just, that's a really important. Everyone say aroused. That's a weird word, but here's what he just said. He goes, my sinful passions were aroused by the law, by the word of God. Think about it. We're at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit for death, but now we, uh, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, doesn't that sound like God's saying that the law is bad? Doesn't that, that this is kind of damning, really, on the law? The law aroused sinful passions in me, and I need to die to the law and be alive to Christ? Well, then what the heck was the purpose of the law? Look at the next verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment or through the law, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That's a big deal. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, Paul says. But when the law came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which should have resulted in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment or through the law, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So though the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, which is the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So stop right there. Here's what he says. He says, hey man, I was fine until the law came. He said, but when the law came, Sin took advantage of the opportunity through the law. And now all of a sudden where my sin was at a level one, because I see the law, my sin's now at a level 10. Not only am I aware of it, my sin is actually aroused in me all the more. And therefore I died. I was dead in my sin. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of flesh. In other words, we're incompatible. Sold into bondage for sin. You ready? Here's your famous passage. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil thing that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, 
I am no longer doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then that this present or that this principle is evil and present in me. The one who wants to do good, that's me, right? He's like, I want to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law of God waging war in the members of my body and in the law of my mind. And it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Stop right there. Now I get that that's a lot of Bible. And no preacher in the right mind reads already two chapters of Bible in a sermon. That's really important that you get it. He's very clearly not talking about his life as a Christian, very clearly talking about his life under the law. He says, listen, the law produces sin in me. And he goes, and though I am willing, my flesh is weak. And here's the idea. He goes, he goes hey, listen. He goes, the, the law it's good and it's holy and it's righteous and it's, and, it's, and it's right and it's pure and it's awesome. He says, the law's great. But when you put the law next to a sinful heart, the sinful heart corrupts the law and it becomes not only unfruitful, it becomes detrimental. And he says, so, so the law actually works against the sinful heart. And he's describing what his life was like under the law. He goes, under the law, I continue to do the thing that I didn't want to do. I, I said yes with my mind like the children of Israel. And I said no with my heart. I lived in this conflict where I wasn't doing the thing that I knew I wanted to do. And instead, I was doing the thing that I don't want to do. And he said, who's going to set me free from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is Paul describing the very same situation that the nation of Israel found themselves in at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the very first time the law is given. And what we see is that the law doesn't work. The very first time that the law is given, the children of Israel, they don't rejoice and go, finally, we know what to do. Finally, we know the way to eternal life. They don't do that. Instead, not 40 days go by and they are worshiping a false God, literally breaking all of the laws that were just given to them. And, he's, and they're going, well, Lord, I said yes with my mind, but not my heart. I'm not doing the very thing that I want to do. I'm not doing the thing that I said I would do. And I'm doing the very thing that I don't want to do. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? And they're actually living the very same paradox that Paul's talking about in his life under Judaism. That the law, when you pair it with, a, with an unregenerated, sinful heart, a sin nature, results in catastrophe. It results not just in mitigated sin, but in greater sin. And he says, hey, I didn't even know what coveting was. And then the law told me about coveting. I was like, dang, that's a sin? Ooh, I want to do that even more. That's the idea of what we just read in Romans chapter 7. There's something about our sin nature that rises up. And when God says to do something, the nature of sin in us says no. And we may look at it and think, yeah, yeah. But our, the, the war that is raging against our bodies says, no, we're not going to do it. 
And this is a pattern that we're going to see with the nation of Israel. You ever wonder how we got 613 laws? If you look at it from a 10,000 foot view, you'll see it. Israel just got 10 commands and a few other laws. They're already breaking them. So this is what God does. He goes, okay, I'll give you more laws. And then those laws produce even more sin. And they continue sin and it gets worse and worse. And God says, okay, I'll give you more laws. And they continue to sin and their sin problem gets worse and worse and worse. And their hardened heart becomes very visible for all to see. And the reality is, the principle that I hit on the very beginning of this is that the law produces death. So why did the apostles say, hey, listen, get out from under the law? Because that's actually working against your sin struggle. He goes, yeah, you gotta get out from under the law. That doesn't help. He says, the law, it's really good. You, you're really bad. And unfortunately, your dirty water mixed with the clean water makes all the water dirty. He says, the problem is your heart and you need to fix it. And so the law comes in and it expresses the 613 laws and shows all of our sin. To quote Paul, and the law makes sin utterly sinful. It takes sin, which is in you and lying dormant, and it amplifies it and it reveals it so that you can deal with the root issue. What's the root issue? It's not the law, because that's the words of God. It's you, it's the heart. So God says, I gotta give you the remedy. And that's really what the law does. Ultimately, when you read the law, it reveals the issue and then gives you the remedy for the issue. What's the remedy? It's Jesus. Well, how's it Jesus? Because the new covenant says this, he goes, hey, I will write the law of God on your heart. He goes, I will take that which is a heart of stone and I will make you a heart of flesh. He goes, the issue is you're hearing the words of God and you're hearing the law of God and and everything in your body is working against it. He goes, I'm gonna give you a new heart and I'm gonna give you a new spirit. He goes, I'm gonna wipe the slate clean. I'm gonna make you right. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus, he fulfills all of the requirements of the law so that we are now right with God. There's no enmity, no chasm, no issues, no barrier, no veil between us and Jesus. He's died for all of our sins and he takes the punishment for all of our sins, but it doesn't stop there. He goes, now, he goes, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to regenerate your spirit. And then on top of all of that, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. Now, here's why this is important as we're looking at the law. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is the spirit of the law. Do you think about this for a second? Remember the difference between the letter and the spirit? The letter is the technicality, the spirit being the, the, the full intention. The Holy Spirit being the one who pins the very words and the very law of God, he is the very spirit behind the law. And so now you don't need to adhere to the technicality and the letter of the law because now you have the very, the very spirit of the law, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and he's written that law upon your hearts. And now for the first time ever, you don't actually have to be like the children of Israel and you don't have to be like Paul in Romans 7 who was like, I didn't do what I wanted to do and I wanted to do what I did want to do, whatever. He goes, he goes listen, you don't need any of that anymore. Now you have a new heart. And now for the first time ever, your mind isn't the only thing saying yes, but your heart's saying yes. And grace enters in and changes us and gives us a new heart and a new spirit, one that is marked by the very author of the law itself. 
And it's really important because if you understand that, all of a sudden the commands of the New Testament make a heck of a lot more sense because we're not under the law, but the New Testament still gives us very clear, uh, a very clear list of how we're supposed to behave, think, feel, and act, right? But wait a second, we're not under the law, so we don't have to do those things. No, no, no. Listen, when you got a new heart, you got a yes in your heart. You said, when you hear God say, I want you to do this, you're like, yes, God, I want to do it with all of my heart. It's not just in my mind. It's not just, I know I should. It's, I really want to. And now all of a sudden your mind and your heart and your spirit, they're acting in one accord. And that results in this beautiful thing called obedience. Obedience to the very spirit of the law where God has written the law upon your heart. And so James would go on to say, hey, faith without works is dead. That's what he's talking about. He goes, listen, if you have the law of the spirit, or if you have the spirit of the law, the Holy Spirit living in you, you cannot help but say yes. And this is really important because there are Christians out there who they, they, they miss Romans 7 and they use it as an excuse for their rebellion. And they think that in Exodus 32, that that's actually just the Christian struggle. Well, God's moving over there and I see people getting rocked by the Lord and, and, but I'm just over here in my sin struggle and everything's okay. And it's more than a sin struggle. I'm just over here in my rebellion because there is room for maturity and there is room for grace. Absolutely. But these guys are hardened by, their, their, their hearts are hardened. And Christians, I will see Christians all the time who go, well, I'm set free from legalism and I'm set free from the law and that means I get to do what I want and grace just covers my sin because I'm saved by grace through faith and that's how it works. And that's not how it works. That's why James goes, faith without works is dead. He goes, listen, if you're saved, you have to have obedience, not as a means of salvation, but because it is the natural overflow of a regenerated heart. When your heart's been regenerated, all of a sudden you're doing the law perfectly. That doesn't mean you're obeying perfectly, but you're not just doing the law in your actions and your behaviors. You're doing the very intention of the law and you're loving. The whole law can be summed up in this, that we love one another, that we love the Lord and that we love one another. And now we have a regenerated heart. Now you have a new spirit dwelling within you. Now, Paul would say it in Romans chapter six, the chapter right before this, as he's leading this all up, he would say this. Now I realize the language can be a little, a little um, um, uh, harmful, but it's the Bible. And so I'm just gonna say the language, okay? He goes, listen, you used to be a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. And we look at that and we're like, great, we're free. We get to do whatever we want. And here's the thing, guys, we're not free anymore. We're not free. When he says you're no longer a slave to sin, he follows that up with, but now you're a slave to righteousness. And we think, oh, well, wait, we're no longer bound to the law, but make no mistake. Yeah, we may no longer be bound to the law, but we are bound to the lawgiver. And the lawgiver perfectly helps us fulfill the law. It's not about feasts. It's not about the actions. It's always been about the heart motive. That's why Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about that even in the Ten Commandments. Right? Jesus says, hey, listen, you've heard it said, Right, if you look at a woman with lust, or you, you've heard it say, yeah, it, it, uh, if you know, don't commit adultery, he goes, well, I'm just going to tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. He goes, but I'm telling you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. Because you may get by with the technicality of the law, but it doesn't save you, and it only fools you into thinking you're something you're not. But when the law, when the spirit of the law hits your heart, all of a sudden you go, I don't want to hate. I don't want to lust. 
I want to fulfill the law in the spirit, not just in the flesh. It's beautiful. That's the beauty of the new covenant. And oftentimes I'll say it like this, guys. You and I, finally, we don't have to sin anymore. Exodus 32, God giving instruction and then Israel going in rebellion and doing the whole molten calf thing. That's not meant to be an encouragement. That's a warning. We don't do that. And that's not to be where you and I live as born again, regenerated Christians. Now, yes, we still have to contend with our flesh. Though our heart's been made new, though our spirit's been made new, the one thing that has been made new, our flesh. And we do have to contend with that. Right? And God is making that new. And ultimately, we're going to have to contend with it until we get our glorified bodies in heaven. So, okay, so I, I'm not saying that you have to be absolutely perfect. What I am saying is we're not to look at Exodus 32 as a source of encouragement and be like, oh, we're in good company. We actually have been set free from living like Exodus 32. And we've been set free from living like Romans 7. Paul says, who's going to set me free from this body of death? I'm living in such conflict. Who's going to set me free? Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. He set me free from all of it. The very spirit of the law dwells within you. I've written the law upon your hearts. It's the new covenant language. So I want to talk to you briefly. I got just five more minutes about the beauty of the new covenant. If you're like me, you think critically and um, maybe a little cynically. And so when I read that, I got to be honest with you, my first instinct, when I read Exodus 32, my first instinct is to go, okay. Oh, you know what? Actually, stop. Let me, let me just, um, let me go back before I forget it. Um, I, I wrote this down. I even highlighted it. It's a quote that I want to read. I think it's really good. Um, here's the deal. The law doesn't solve the sin problem. It was never meant to solve the sin problem. It was meant to reveal and prescribe the problem. The law wasn't plan A and grace plan B. The law, you ready for this, was check meant to lead us to grace, which was checkmate. And so when you're looking at the law, it's really helpful to look at it and go, this wasn't plan A and, the, and grace is plan B. Jesus being plan B, the law being plan A for salvation. That's not how it worked at all. Look at what David Guzik says. This is stunning. He says, you thought the problem was that you didn't know what to do to save yourself, but the law came as a teacher, taught you what you needed to do, and you still couldn't do it. You don't need a teacher. You need a savior. You thought the problem was that you weren't motivated enough, but the law came in like a coach to encourage you on what to do and what you need to do, and you still didn't do it. You don't need a coach or a motivational speaker. You need a savior. And then he says this, you thought the problem was that you didn't know yourself well enough, but the law came in like a doctor and perfectly diagnosed your sin problem, but the law couldn't heal you. You don't need a doctor. You need a savior. And that's what the law was all about, prescribing and revealing the remedy. You need a savior, you need a new heart. And we apprehend that by grace through faith. Now, back to my point, if you're like me, when you read Exodus 32, you read a little cynical and you might go, wait a second, God, you gave the law to a bunch of people who were not saved. You gave the law to a bunch of people who didn't know Jesus. You gave the law to a bunch of people who were under the Old Testament. They had no concept of Jesus. They had no concept of new heart. They had no concept that were saved by grace through faith. And that seems a little unfair. Seems a little unfair to give them the law, knowing full and well that they not only can't obey it, but that the law is going to amplify their sin, and they're going to probably end up doing some crazy thing like, I don't know, worshiping a false golden calf god. Seems a little unfair. Until you realize the beauty of the new covenant is that the new covenant's not new. It's actually 
predates even the old covenant. And Hebrews does a brilliant job of explaining this. Shocker. That the new covenant, that we're saved by grace through faith, that's actually how it's always been. That Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Isaac was saved by grace through faith. That Jacob was saved by grace through faith. That Joseph was saved by grace through faith. That Moses was saved by grace through faith. And just because they heard the law did not demand that all of a sudden now they were more sinful. They chose how they were going to respond to the law. And the reality is you had access to that new heart and they had access to that new spirit even back in the Old Testament. Book of Hebrews chapter 11 details what we call the hall of faith. And it's the writer literally saying this exact same thing, being like, now behold, here's the new covenant. Let me explain to you why it's not so new and why it actually predates the old covenant. He says, Abraham was saved. It was credited to him righteousness. He was saved by grace through faith. And the reality was that, these, that the nation of Israel had the exact same access that you and I have today because the Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. And ultimately, they were saved the same way that you and I are saved, but they were never saved by the law. They misunderstood the law. They were always saved by grace through faith. They were always saved by putting their faith in the Lord. And had they put their faith in the Lord, you know what would have happened? The natural overflow, they would have adhered to the law. They were saved by grace through faith. And to make matters far more interesting, in this story, we're going to cover it specifically next week, God has this encounter with Moses and he's telling him, hey, they're doing the whole golden calf thing. Leave me alone. I'm going to go kill him. Moses intercedes. He prays. God changes his mind. Can't wait to talk about that. And then Moses goes down off the mountain in fury and anger. And he goes marching up to Aaron and he says, what the heck? Probably says something way worse than that, right? <laughs> what are you doing, Aaron? You were my guy. I ain't been gone more than 40 days, dude. You saw me up there. You saw God up there. What are you doing, man? You're the high priest. And Aaron starts blaming the people because, you know, that's what real men do. And then Moses gives this call, and it's absolutely remarkable. He says, let everyone who's for the Lord come to me. And a small group of people march forward to Moses. And it's a group of people called the Levites. And they said, we're for the, we're for the Lord. They didn't bow down to worship the molten calf. They were saved by grace through faith. They wanted nothing to do. The law produced in them life. They said, yeah, we're for God. We're for our covenant. We had nothing to do with this. And Moses says, awesome, Levites. You guys go get a sword. We're gonna start killing people. That's what happens. He goes, go, go start killing people. He goes, everyone, everyone who did that, he goes, we're going to send a message. Now, here's what's so interesting about the Levites. You can say, well, why is that interesting? Because the Levites hadn't yet been given the invitation to be the priests. The Levites had not been charged to be the priests of the Old Testament until after this moment. And I'm convinced that the reason that they were elected to be the priestly chief or the priestly um, um, tribe was because this moment right here, this moment when everybody else is worshiping the golden calf, they're going, no, not us. And they're the ones who exact judgment and they're the ones who keep God's name. They're the ones who keep God's people and God's presence and God's word sacred and they hold it true. Now let's fast forward and say, what does that have to do with me? Guess which tribe the gatekeepers were? The tribe of Levi. 
They were Levites. The very gatekeeper calling that we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 9 of keeping guard and keeping watch of the tabernacle of David has its roots in this moment right here. Where when everybody else in the world is worshiping a golden calf, and everybody else, everyone else who seems to be chosen by God is following a false god, they not only don't participate, but they go to war to protect the covenant and the word of God. I think it's fascinating. And it's stunning to me. I'm convinced, guys, the only reason that the gatekeepers were a part of the tribe of Levi is because Levi, the tribe of Levi, did not bow to the molten calf. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.